You're listening to 247 Real Talk. I'm your host, Julian Perry, along with my guest for this episode, Ms. Amanda Webster. She's a certified mind and body wellness coach, and we will be discussing serious mental illness. Good evening, Amanda. Welcome to the show. Thank you for joining 247 Real Talk. Hi, thanks so much for having me. It's absolutely an absolute pleasure to have you here this evening to discuss uh, uh, something that's you know really in depth in our society, something that some people would like to ignore, something that a lot of people in many different areas of life struggle with. Some people keep it a secret, some people um choose to be advocates and some people you know unfortunately don't make it through the journey so as someone who has dealt with serious mental illness um why don't we start this off in infantile stage and why don't you tell us you know maybe a little bit about your childhood and at what stage you know you you started to deal with this issue it's interesting because I know a lot of people do struggle with traumatic childhood. And for the most part, my childhood was great. I had two parents that loved each other. We're still together. I did have a babysitter that ended up abusing me and some of the other children. And when my parents found out, obviously, I stopped going there. And I don't know if that played into my later problems because I do know I was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, BPD. And a lot of those issues do stem from young childhood uh, trauma like that, and we don't always realize it. So I've been told that that could be a part of it, but I didn't really start seeing signs of depression until I was in probably fourth or fifth grade. I started getting bullied, and that started leading, obviously, to self-esteem issues, self-worth issues, fear, uh, and I, I was always kind of that lone wolf, very ostracized from the pack. And as I went on, I did I did make a few friends and. Um, and started to feel a bit more accepted. And then when I was a teenager, I was sexually assaulted by a classmate and I dropped out of school as a result. And I started partying and I started getting into uh, just dabbling with different drugs, uh, alcohol, obviously, a little bit of cocaine, marijuana, just to cope. Um, I didn't really tell anybody at the time. Uh, my mom had given me, it was really weird. My mom gave me the CD hybrid theory, which at the time we're recording this, the 20th anniversary is in three days. And I feel so old. <laughs> this is the 20th anniversary of the album is coming out in three days. But uh, my mom had given me this album and I was very much a bubblegum pop princess. I, I always listen to NSYNC and Britney Spears, not pop stuff. And my mom gave me this album. I'm like, what is this? <laughs> I, I, I didn't understand. But as it turns out, um, that music really helped me during the sexual assault. It really helped me start to deal with some trauma. And it didn't, it didn't really quote unquote fix me, but it did give me a solid coping mechanism. And fortunately, my dad passed away when I was 20. My mom passed away when I was 22. And that just kind of started the snowball of the <clears> mental <throat> health spiral. Okay, so let's slow it down a bit, because um, that's that's a lot in a, in in I'm assuming a short space of time. Um, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> right. So we'll start to the tip and we'll delve right in. But tell me, um, 
were you personally aware? At what point did you become personally aware, you know, that, that to yourself that there was an issue? Um, like I said, I started realizing about fourth or fifth grade when I started just, it wasn't sadness anymore. I was feeling more than sadness. I was feeling consistently upset, consistently crying, consistently afraid. I was starting to have consistent, uh, what one would consider negative emotions. I know now emotions aren't positive or negative. But at the time, I mean, I was basically a child. You define things as this is a good feeling, this is a bad feeling, and I was having a lot of bad feelings all the time. And they just kind of started stacking until junior high or high school. Um, and my dad found out he was terminal when I was about 13. So that started me into self-harm and stuff because I just, again, didn't know how to cope. But, um, yeah, when I was in fourth or fifth grade, I started realizing something was wrong. And the self-harm, is that uh, just defined as maybe a, you know, a, a drug addiction or drug abuse, or there was there more to it? This, this self-harm was um, cutting myself. I was into the physical self-harm as in um, cutting my wrists, pulling my hair, uh, physically inducing pain to cope with my dad being terminal, with bullying, with the... And it wasn't all physical. There was physical bullying, but it was physical and emotional, like just constantly being ridiculed by my peers. It was really difficult to deal with, and I found out about that time that a friend of mine was self-harming, and that's when I was first introduced to it. And at first, I panicked. I was like, oh, my God, I need to help her. I don't know what to do. And then there was kind of this, I, I'm very hesitant to say voice, but this thought in my head, and I, I in later years gave it a name. I call it the shadow, but I, this is where I started having these dark thoughts, like the really dark thoughts. It went beyond, okay, I'm, ha I'm struggling with being upset a lot to now I'm having these dark thoughts of hurting myself, of hurting others, of, of just again, not knowing how to deal or how to cope. It was a nightmare. It was, it was hell. I didn't, I didn't know how to navigate the world. I didn't know how to find my place. It was just extremely lonely. Even though I had, like I said, a couple of friends, it was extremely, extremely lonely. And when you say um, you're cutting yourself, and I think a lot of us are curious about um, that whole phase too, only from the perspective of, of trying to understand what someone goes through, because I think of it in, 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 you know, from my perspective, specifically, if I get a, you know, a couple of weeks ago, a couple of months ago, a glass fell and, they, and I got a really bad gash on my hand that was tremendously painful. And that was accidental. I couldn't imagine actually doing that to myself. So, I mean, when you, when you started cutting yourself, I'm I'm interested, and I think my audience would be interested to understand too, as we try to understand this whole mental illness journey. Um, what makes you stop each time you do it? Is it is it you hit a threshold of pain, or is it a fear? What makes you stop from going all the way each time you try to do it? It wasn't a desire to die. That's a very big misconception people have that when you cut yourself, you're trying to kill yourself, and that was not what I was doing at all. I had no desire to die. 
I just wanted the internal pain to stop. And the best way I can explain it to people is my dad used to joke when I was a little kid that if I stubbed my toe and I was saying, oh, my toe hurts, he would say, well, come here, I'm going to slug you in the arm and then you'll be distracted from the pain in your toe. And it's kind of the same concept. If I'm feeling this immense amount of emotional turmoil, the self-harm, the shock to the system would kind of distract me almost from that emotional uh, distress from that emotional pain. So at that point, once you're pulled away from it, even for those couple of minutes, once you're pulled away from it, then when it does start to come back, it doesn't necessarily hit all at once. It kind of drip, uh, like dribbles back and it drips back in, and it's easier to deal with at that point. That was the experience for me. And I obviously can't speak for everyone, but for me, it was just a matter of dulling the emotional pain long enough that I could go, okay, I had a break now. I can start to try to deal with the feelings that are coming at me that I don't understand or I don't necessarily know how to cope with. And that, that's, a, that's very good information for those of us who are trying to understand. It's a very good distinction, too, because I'm sure many people believe, and I've heard this in a lot of discussions, that when you see someone going through that process of cutting themselves, the the immediate assumption is that the person is suicidal. So that's a very good distinction uh, to make for those of us who are trying to digest this. So thank you for that, because I think that a lot of people will get, you know, get clarity on that. And, and, and it helps, I think, in this conversation when we see someone going through something like that, to be able to understand what they're going through as opposed to making assumptions. So Yeah, that's something I'm really passionate about. Um, breaking. I'm, I'm all about breaking the mental health stigma anyways. That's why I'm on here. Uh, that's why I started my YouTube channel. I've been talking to different uh, people about mental health, like different celebrities and stuff. But I think that is one of the top misconceptions about mental health and especially about self-harm. So yeah, I do think that is a very important conversation to have. Are there people that that cut themselves because they want to die? Absolutely. But it's a, it's actually a very small percentage of um, individuals who are struggling with mental health. Yeah, that, that's very good because I, I think I, I myself might have, in a situation seeing someone do that, might jump to the conclusion that, you know, they're suicidal. So take us through the next, the next step. What was next? Well, there, were, there was a lot going on and there was a lot of changes happening. And I ended up, my parents took me to Disney uh, world in, in Florida for my 16th birthday where I met this boy and I convinced my parents to move across the country from Missouri to Arizona so I could try and date this guy because I actually ended up cutting too deep. I ended up in the hospital. My mom panicked, of course. Like I said, I had two parents that very much loved me and my mom just panicked. She freaked out. She found me on the bathroom floor. Um, I'm assuming I kind of blacked out, but I remember looking up and seeing her and there was blood all over her shirt for me. Uh, and I remember kind of coming to in the hospital and both my parents are sobbing. And at this point I'm breaking apart because my dad was like the six foot two, really, uh, really stocky ex-professional wrestler, like very macho man. And he's sitting by my, my bedside crying and I'm just sitting there feeling so terribly guilty that I broke this person, like this strong man. I broke my mom who was just this incredibly powerful woman. So Shortly thereafter, we ended up going to, like I said, Disney World for my 16th birthday. That was my sweet 16. Met this guy, convinced my parents to move across the country because their 
in this mindset at this point of we will do anything to make her happy. And she doesn't fit in at school. So they weren't really happy in Missouri anyway. Uh, my dad had lost his little uh, business that he built. He was disabled and he built kind of a home business where he fixed up lawnmowers and stuff. So he felt very betrayed. My mom didn't have anything she couldn't leave. And I just on a whim was like, I'm, I'm in love with this kid that I met for four days because he gave me attention and I'd never really had attention from my peers. So chased him to Arizona. He wanted nothing to do with me once I got there. And um, shortly thereafter, like literally a few months later, I was sexually assaulted and dropped out of school because I just couldn't face my rapist. So hold on. Uh, let's let's, let's, let's step, take a step back again because all this, each step here you know, is, is very important in your story. So because most people would pause and say, irrespective of, some kid that their chit their their child you know seems to be infatuated with, irrespective of the fact that there there was no real ties or chains to to where they were where they were living then, it's still a tall order to think that you can convince your parents to pick up their entire lives and to move somewhere else that they they never lived before. I'm assuming. And the entire basis for that had to do with a boy that you met for four days. I mean, I couldn't convince, never in my life, in, in 10 lifetimes, could I convince my parents to do any, any such thing. That, that alone is, that's incredible. I, I, I have to pause it, on that. It is crazy. Um, if you knew my parents, anybody that's listening that did know me growing up or that knew my parents, it's really not super hard to believe because my parents were very much, we're going to do things on a whim, we're just going to take a big chance that that was a kind of consistent thing uh, through my childhood where my parents just were okay with making huge changes and moving out of nowhere. Uh, and I had went to a different school every year up until third grade. So like kindergarten, first and second grade, I kept moving around a lot. And then finally we settled down in Missouri for a while. But when I stop to think about it now, yes, a part of it does sound crazy, but I'm a mom to a nine year old little boy. And if my son nearly took his life because he was so miserable and so unhappy with where we were at, even if I had my dream job, even if I had everything I'd ever wanted, I would drop everything in a heartbeat to, in my perspective, save his life. And I, I realize in retrospect, that's what my parents were trying to do is my mom. She, like I said, she completely panicked. And my dad was just kind of the type of person that is like, what do I need to do for my little girl? Like, what do I need to do to make her happy? And once I wasn't a kid anymore and it wasn't, here's a Ninja Turtle and a chocolate bar, uh, it, was, it was a little harder for him. And it just became kind of more and more uh, intense measures because I wasn't happy at school. I wasn't happy with my peers. I wasn't really happy in my, in my outside life. So my parents felt like they kind of had to overcompensate for that. So they maxed out like 17 credit cards and filed bankruptcy trying to help me fit in because I just didn't. And I was depressed. So they would take me shopping every weekend and people would think I was spoiled, but it was just my way of trying to compensate for not being accepted. And it was my parents' way for trying to almost put a Band-Aid on this issue. And to be clear, just to clarify, I did see a mental health professional during this time. I was seeing a therapist off and on since grade school, like fourth or fifth grade when I started getting bullied. I started seeing a mental health professional, and it just didn't do a thing at all. So it's not like they were just like, here's some money. We were trying to um, to go through other avenues as well. Okay, so 
it's 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 still uh I still have to take some time after the podcast to think about that and, and digest that and and um because I can understand at the same time that your parents are probably overwhelmed by what you were going through and they and not having an understanding of it. Yes, I can see that you know it, it became a, des- a move of desperation. So you get to you get to your new location and you know like the typical story that we've heard a million times. You know, once you got there, the kid was no longer interested in you. And you said you went to school and shortly thereafter you were assaulted. Um, so my, the two questions I have in terms of that, that part of the story is, one, was the, the perpetrator ever identified? Did he, was he ever brought to justice? And, you know, if he was, how did that, you know, did that help you at all? In, you know, in, in in knowing that there was some, you know, closure or clarity, or was he not brought to justice, and that took you to a deeper state of depression? Unfortunately, he was not. I was 16 years old. I was scared. I'd seen, you know, these girls on TV, these girls in the news that were raped and that took it to court, and they had to face the person, and they lost, and they had to watch him walk away. And I knew that rape is a hard thing to fight. I I know that. I knew that even at 16 years old. And I panicked and I didn't uh, report it, which I know now was not the best decision. Um, I I deserved to have my day in court. I deserved to tell my story. But I did not um, pursue anything, which, yes, was frightening in several senses because there's the first sense that it's like he's still out there. He's still you know, lurking in the shadows. And I had a paranoia because it was a very small town and I was afraid you know, when I was going out and about, because it's like, I let him by with this. I let him get by with this. And now he's just still out there wandering the streets. Is he going to try and attack me again? Is he going to attack someone else? What's going to happen? So there was a lot of fear surrounding it. And I didn't actually, this happened when I was 16. I'm now 35. And I didn't actually get any closure about it really till a few years ago uh, when I started talking more openly about it. And then in the last two years, I've, I've been writing my book in the last like year and a half, and I, I do talk about it a little in my book. And that was really cathartic for me, like writing it out, talking really about every detail that I can remember of what happened. That was awesome. I did find out, because I am in Arizona, this was about three and a half hours away from where I live now, but I'm down in, in the valley in Phoenix area now. And I found out that he was working at a school because Facebook decided to friend suggest us. And just shock aside, I found that he was working at a school. So I called the Board of Education and I said, look, I, this isn't a, I never filed a police report on this or anything, but I, I am willing to make a statement. This guy does not need to be working at a school. And I ended up getting him fired from his job. And that was kind of my, my retribution in a way. That was kind of my little tiny sliver of justice. It's like, well, in some way you had to pay for what you did and maybe you'll realize that there are consequences, even if they're later in life, even if it's not what you deserved, you definitely deserved more. There was some kind of consequence and that gave me some level of peace. Okay. So I'm going to stop you there again. I mean, this is really, um, every step of this is so important and it is a different message everywhere because you know, for all the parents out there, and I'm going to make this sort of public service announcement um, that you have your kids and your kids are on Facebook. I want you to listen to what Amanda just said, because Facebook uh, made the friend suggestion to Amanda 
with the guy who sexually assaulted her. I don't know what algorithm they're using, but that is a big red flag. Uh, even if someone themselves from Facebook is listening, you know, for whatever it's worth, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what criteria is used, maybe because it's the same town or something, but there had to be somewhere. Maybe it's a school that was in your, in, in, in your bio or something, but it had to be somewhere on an algorithm that they're using that linked him to you. Yeah. And that terrified me. I mean, it was, it was very scary just because not to be, not to lie. I don't want to lie. I, I had repressed this so hard for the longest time. I just wanted to pretend it never happened. And I just wanted to pretend he didn't exist. So when I'm sitting there, you know, just going to message my friends and check up on a couple of my friends and whatnot. And his name pops up. I'm not, I had a panic attack. I had a complete and utter panic attack just sitting there. And then to see that he was working to school and I'm, freaking out going what in the hell is this guy doing you know while, while nobody's monitoring him they, they're letting him work at a school <laughs> because apparently he didn't have a record either he i was a one-time thing which i highly highly doubt or you know he just never got caught but yeah he was working at a school do you think he was aware that you were the reason he lost his job no Okay, because I'm assuming he, they had to, he was not aware of that. Usually, they have to give the person a reason, and if he had a clean record and he hadn't done anything, that that you know that um, that gives him grounds to challenge any kind of termination for you know obviously. Interestingly enough, um, in Arizona, Arizona is a right to work state, so you don't have to have a reason to fire someone. Okay, that worked in your favor. <laughs> yeah, because I said when I when I did um, speak with them when I did file. I, I don't want to say file a report, but I, when I did like report to them, I did bring it to their attention. I said, I don't want my name brought into this. I don't want him knowing that I'm the one that, that brought this to your attention. I'd rather you just fire him. But if you do have to say something, I don't want my name on this because I didn't want him to be even more vengeful or angry toward me. I don't even know if he remembers me to be truthfully honest with you. Well, you do know that this uh, two, four, seven real talk podcast, we're, not only heard in the United States, but in several countries around the world. So there's a possibility that he hears this podcast at some point. Well, if he does, I want him to know that I have forgiven him. I have moved on with my life and I am happy and I'm successful. And I hope that whatever was inside of him that made him do something so horrible that he has found peace with that and that he has, healed himself in whatever way he needed to heal himself. So if he does hear this someday, I forgive him. Okay. So we're, gonna, we're not going to give him any more time because he's not worth it. So tell me. He's really not. Yeah. I took my power back. He's yeah. not worth my time. He's not worth my energy. So what happened next? Tell me the next part of the journey. Cause you said this, it goes a lot deeper than we've spoken up so far. The next few years of my life were kind of a blur. I partied a lot. I was drunk or high almost all the time, started dabbling in pills and cocaine. And by the time I finally came out of it, I was 20. So this is four years later. Uh, I, I've been partying off and on. And I kind of come out of this haze and my dad died. And I was, I was really... Like when I came out of it, I was like, oh my God, what have I done with my life? I need to get things in order. I'd gotten my GED, but I, I hadn't went to college. I hadn't had a stable job. I had a felony apparently. 
uh, on my record. So I had all of these things playing against me and I am sitting there going, okay, I'm going to get my life back together. I'm going to go to at least the community college, take some classes, stop smoking. I'd start smoking cigarettes. And my dad was really disappointed about that because he had um, emphysema and I, I, I wanted to get my life on track and so, my dad died. So let's pause there he again. He was terminal. Okay. Mm-hmm. Let's pause there for a second again. Two things that came to mind. One, I wanted to explain a little bit about you. You know, you came out of it. Um, I'm assuming that that was voluntary, or, or I don't think it's involuntarily. So it's voluntary. And and you know, how did you just? How does one go through a phase of life where they're you know they sort of get deeper into drugs and and that kind of substance abuse, and then just come out of it? And two, and I'm asking that question because. I think it would be helpful to many or any listeners who are going through something like that or know someone and can sort of uh, give them, empower them to come out of it. That's number one. And um, in terms of the felony, uh, you said apparently, so I'm assuming in that four years there was a felony that was a blur to you? Sometimes what? I'm a, the felony was that like part of those four years of a, that was a blur to you, so you don't really recall the, the details, or or because you, you, you said apparently I had a, you had a felony. When I came out of it, I didn't know. Um, really, my mom had brought it to my attention. My mom had said something about the felony. I'm kind of like, wait, what felony? And it was almost like I didn't remember these several years of my life, and what I did remember just kind of came to me in flickers. I I got up one morning and I had this revelation, just kind of this realization. I was like, holy crap, like I'm, I'm four years older. I have nothing to show for it. I don't really have any memories of these last four years. And I, I felt really strange. I ended up realizing that I was craving cigarettes. Like I walked outside and I just kind of almost involuntarily just picked up a cigarette and started smoking it and went, what the hell? And, uh, I remember going outside during this time period. I talked to my mom. My mom had told me, you know, I have these, I have a felony on my record for credit card theft. And I kind of realized later that I took the fall for a friend because she was pregnant and I didn't want her to get in trouble. So I took the fall to this other girl because that's what you do when you're a teenager and stupid. (laughs) I was barely 18. Uh, And I, I remember I went outside to smoke a cigarette. I had, I had, I guess, left my cigarettes in the kitchen. So I had, I went through the kitchen, um, out through the front door. I usually smoked, um, outside, apparently out by my bedroom. It had its own door, but I go outside to smoke and I'm coming back in. And my dad said, I can't believe you can watch me die and still light up a cigarette. And I'm just, he's right. <laughs> I realize he's right. I'm overwhelmed with guilt. I'm overwhelmed with this feeling of, revelation. And I, I almost always had Lincoln Park in my stereo and I go back into my room and I remember the song, it's called Don't Stay. And it starts out, sometimes I need to remember just to breathe. Sometimes I need you to stay away from me. And I just remember taking the cigarettes out of my pocket, out of my jacket pocket and just throwing them at the wall and like freaking out. I'm sitting there listening to the song, just kind of having this breakdown going, I need to stop this. I need to to get out of this and whatever I put myself in, I need to find a way out of it. It's like, okay, I'm a list person. I have to make lists. So I start to look for a piece of paper. I find a journal. 
it has suicide notes in it. So apparently during these four years, I was even more suicidal. I wrote a bunch of suicide notes. I made this list of the things I needed to do. Obviously, quit smoking was, was the priority in this time. Figure out the felony, figure out uh, a job situation. Like, I, I hadn't had a stable job, so figuring out a job. So just, you know, basic, I need to figure out some kind of functional life here. What can I do to create some kind of a functionality in my life? And it, it was a little overwhelming, a little daunting, because my whole life is in pieces, and truthfully, I didn't even really know why. So my whole life's in pieces. I just make this list of basic things to do at 20 years old that will give me some kind of resemblance of a, of a quote unquote normal life. Okay. So, um, that, it, that, you know, that's pretty amazing that it was your own self-realization. I mean, uh, albeit that your father's comment kind of, uh, added the shock and awe to what you needed to wake you up. So now you're, you're at a point of realization. What's next? It's funny that you say that, by the way, because I've always had mental health professionals tell me that I was the most self-aware borderline individual ever or person uh, diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, like the most self-aware depressed person ever, because I, I did, you know, have these points of, of just absolute self-realization. So as I said, then, as I'm trying to get these things together, as I go and I, I buy the the stuff to try and quit smoking, to try and help myself quit smoking, and I pick up the brochures at the local college, and I get myself a little part-time job and stuff, uh, I my dad, I just wake up, and my mom said, I think your dad's dead. And it was, even though he was terminal, it was still just kind of out of nowhere. He had gotten pneumonia, and this was probably two weeks, a week or two after he got out of the hospital, he just passed away. And once we started looking at the last couple of weeks, we realized he knew it and he just didn't tell us that he was, he was going to pass away. And that of course made my mom very angry and she started going through an intense grieving process. But my dad had made me promise when something happened to her that I would get her home to her family in Ohio. So we, we went, I went from my life's in shambles, okay, I'm going to get my, my crap together, to my dad passes away, to now we're moving again four years after we uprooted our lives to come here. Okay. So, yeah, that's, that's, that's uh, I can see that struggle because there's a lack of stability there. You're trying to sort of set up roots now in, in, a, in a positive direction, and here we go again. So keep going with the story. So I get my mom um, to Ohio. We actually lived in hotels for a bit because we couldn't get immediately there. And we were trying to figure out my probation because of my felony. And my probation officer wouldn't transfer me. And my mom at this point is starting to get immensely depressed because her husband of 20 some odd years, 21, I think, uh, had just passed away. She, I was her only real support system at all. She didn't, she wasn't close to anybody in Arizona. So her entire life falling apart. And I had to make the choice to just say, screw my probation and end up getting my mom back to Ohio uh, because her son from her first marriage was there. And he said, you know, we'll help you. You can stay with us as long as you want. And he ended up kicking us out after less than two weeks. So my mom and I were homeless <laughs> with our dogs and the guy I was, I was casually seeing at the time. We were all homeless living in our two cars because 
her son ended up kicking us out on the streets. Wow. That's, that's, um, uh, I have to pause there again because. And that's a big hit for anybody. It's, right. It's, it's, like, it's you know, I, her husband just died and we go to turn to family thinking that they're going to be supportive and loving, you know, like family should be. And he ends up just taking us out after two weeks. Well, I can tell you why that's important to me at this moment. And it's, it's only specific, you know, things happen in mysterious ways, but we're having this conversation tonight. Um, this is October 21st. This is today is my mother's birthday. She's been dead for, I don't know, six or seven years. And there isn't a day that goes by that I don't think about her, especially on a day like today, her birthday. So never in my wildest dreams, no matter what she was going through, would I even think about kicking her out of my home, you know, and, and so that that's, you know, saying that in the midst of other powerful things, it, you know, might be seem inconsequential in the bigger story. But for me, hearing that, hearing you say that today on this day, you know, has a lot of meaning. Well, first and foremost, happy birthday to your mama. I, I send you love. I know that that's a very hard uh, day to get through. And, and any anniversaries or birthdays have always been really rough for me, too. So I, I, I'm sending you my love through through this podcast. I appreciate that. Uh, and, and good energy to, to your mom's memory. I will definitely light a candle tonight. But he, she had him when she was very young. She had him, I think she was... 17 or so she's still a teenager and so she had uh, alcohol issues so she'd been an alcoholic with her uh, husband with his dad and he had a lot of resentment issues and we didn't really realize how deep they ran but he had a lot of resentment issues toward her toward um, the family toward uh, me obviously because you know on some level I got what he couldn't have I had her as a loving supportive sober mother and he didn't get that so there was a lot of jealousy and resentment going on there and I, I kind of put him in the same I know it's kind of terrible to say but in the same category as my assailant just for the fact that I hated him for so long like how dare you do that to my mother how dare you do that to uh, me it just broke her heart and you know she was already struggling but I do see that he was coming from a point of pain and a point of disappointment. And for some reason, he just couldn't handle having her there. And I definitely think he could have found better ways to handle it. But um, just like with with the, my my um, assailant, I, I forgive him. I understand that there was something deeper going on there. But I'll never forget the look on my mom's face of just like pure heartbreak when she was sitting on the curb waiting for us to come pick her up with her couple of bags because that was the other thing is we didn't have anything that was particularly worth anything. I mean, we had our belongings and we were keeping them in his shed and he ends up telling us that he forbids us to get them calls the cops. So we can't even get any belongings beyond, you know, basic toiletries and some clothes and stuff. He won't even let us get the rest of our belongings. So you could tell that it was just absolute resentment there was nothing else driving this but resentment okay so um the, you know the, so i can understand the environment you're in and that has to be you know the sort of a double whammy or triple whammy on what you're already suffering internally um 
But before I go on to the next step in your journey, I'm assuming, what's, what's your relationship like with him today? We tried to work things out and make things right. Um, I did kind of make peace with him a few years ago, but I just realized that there was never going to be a relationship between us. And I just didn't welcome the energy that he brought um, around. I just didn't find anything positive that he brought to my life. So I didn't end anything on bad terms, but I just... I just decided for my own mental health that there was really no reason for having him in my life that I would rather just say, you know what, I wish you well. And I hope that, I hope that you find the happiness you were looking for. I hope that you find that peace you were looking for. I hope you make peace, you know, with your mom and stuff. And he had made a gesture, which I'll explain here in a couple of minutes. He had made a gesture that was kind of his peace offering. So we ended, you know, pretty much in peace, just understanding that we weren't meant to be in each other's lives. Okay, so what? What? Where? You're 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 homeless, so to speak. You're living out of your cars. What's next in the story? We did end up eventually getting help. We got a little bit of help from the Red Cross, who helped, who let us, um, who got us in a hotel for a couple of weeks. But during those weeks, it was terrifying for one because. We were in Springfield, Ohio, which I know people wouldn't think is an unsafe area. I mean, you think Detroit, Chicago, right now New York, uh, L.A., but it, it was a pretty, it had some pretty shady areas. And no matter where we went, there were, you, you could witness drug deals at pretty much any park you went to. And I, I just remember sitting there thinking, don't look, don't look, don't look. I don't want to witness. I don't want you to see me witnessing. I don't care. Just do what you're going to do and go away. And it was the first time in my life that I really, well, since really young in my childhood, because my parents were, were poor for a while, but in my like teenager adult life, it was the first time that I really was afraid for where my food was going to come from. I didn't know where my food was going to come from. I didn't know where I was going to sleep the next night. I didn't know where I was going to get dog food for our two chihuahuas that were also living in the car with us. And everything in my life was just so absolutely unsure. I... I was scared to sleep at night because I was afraid that somebody was going to break in and assault me or my mom or try and rob us or something. We actually, my mom had her purse stolen uh, with her IDs and everything in it. So that was a whole fun situation too. And it just seemed like it was one crisis after another. And we, anybody that ever says that it's easy to get quote unquote handouts has obviously clearly never needed them because trying to get assistance, government or otherwise nonprofit, whatever, is like jumping through hoops, like a dolphin jumping through hoops. It's just a train wreck. You, you call these people that will then tell you to call these other people that will have you call the first people. So it's just a cycle and trying to get actual help, especially when you don't have an address is nearly impossible. We, we managed to scrape by on some food boxes and some churches that were helping and stuff, but we were, we were rock bottom. That was definitely the worst I'd ever been um, physically and emotionally. I think the only reason that I didn't probably overdose was because drugs are expensive. <laughs> but I, I was finding cigarettes in um, in gutters or in ashtrays and just singeing the butt and smoking cigarettes out of ashtrays and stuff just to try and and manage my nerves, manage this massive anxiety I was feeling all the time, manage this fear, just to have something 
um, some kind of chemical to comfort me. And I, I definitely uh, started self-harming and stuff again. So when does this, uh, you know, um, it was that when, at what point was rock bottom? At what point did this turn around? Because I'm looking at, you know, who you are today and obviously you've come an incredibly long way and you're, if you are not already, you should be an inspiration to so many people who've dealt with challenges because, you know, I think when people go through difficulties in life, it, it, it's personal to the point where you think that your, your struggles, your journey, you know, they're, they're worse than anybody else on the face of the earth is going through. So your story will, you know, is and will definitely be inspirational to so many of my, my listeners. But so tell me, um, where did you go from there? And then, you know, go right through to the point where you start to become the Amanda that I'm speaking to now. Well, it took me quite a few years after that because I lost my mom after that a few months um, late, well, about a year and a half later, actually about a year and a half later, I lost my mom. Um, and it took her son 10 years to give me her ashes, almost 10 years to give me her ashes after her passing. And it definitely got worse before it got better. In 2017, uh, the lead singer of, of Lincoln Park, Chester Bennington, ended up committing suicide or ended up um, losing the battle of suicide. He, um, that was really hard for me because that was my one coping mechanism. That was my comfort blanket. That was the only positive thing that I had in my life uh, through all of this. I mean, I would literally lay in the park while I was homeless listening to this CD, listening to one of their CDs, any of their CDs. And this was my only comfort, really, for any of this, other than obviously my parents when I did have them. But that started a downward spiral. And the beginning of me coming out of that, ironically, was in June of 2018, uh, I had spiraled really deep into drugs and self-harm, like the deepest I'd ever fallen in my life after Chester's um, death. And about six months later, I ended up meeting the other singer, Mike Schnoda, and it inspired me. It, like Meeting him just really motivated me to uh, go into recovery. I said, I can't do this anymore. I can't be hurting myself. I can't be a hypocrite because I'm sitting there going, oh, we all need to make Chester proud. And I was hashtagging that because for, for the Lincoln Park fans, like that was the hashtag at the time. It's depression, make Chester proud. And here I am snorting coke and hurting myself. Like <laughs> it's definitely not going to make Chester or my parents or myself or anyone else proud. And that was my moment where I said, okay, I'm really going to start moving forward. And I did, but I didn't deal with the underlying issues of why I was turning to these things in the first place. So. This was in June, in October of 2018, I almost took my life, and I was literally ready to jump. I was in the, on the ledge of a Canadian hotel room in Quebec, Canada, and I was looking down, thinking two things. One, I hope this doesn't hurt because I don't want to hurt anymore. And two, this is what's best for your son. Just get it over with. He'll be better off without you. This is what's best for him. And... The cleaning crew at that very moment turned their stereo on and it was Lincoln Park breaking the habit. And I was like, okay, somebody wants me here. I'm, meant, I'm not meant to jump. I came inside. I fell apart. And I had this moment. This is kind of my, my okay, I know that I need to make change, but I don't know what to do. I don't know how. Because I feel like I tried everything. I, I went to the therapy. I'd taken the medications. I'd done the yoga. I'd read the self-help books. Like, I'd done all these things. Nothing was, quote-unquote, fixing me. So I went back uh, to Arizona, 
where I live, and I went to a mental health professional, and I said, look, I'm tired of being complacent. I'm tired of you literally just making sure that I don't kill myself on your watch. You don't care if I'm happy. You don't care if I actually live a fulfilling life. You just don't want me to die on your watch. I want to be happy, and I'm committed to this. Help me. And that woman looked me in the eyes and said, with, with your disorder, with being diagnosed SMI, serious mental illness, that's not possible. And that was my, I don't know how many of your listeners have seen Legally Blonde. It's the, it's the 20th anniversary of that movie this Sunday. So anybody that hasn't seen it should watch it. But I had that Elle Woods in the Bunny costume moment where I just looked at her in my head, thought, you watch me. I'm going to prove you wrong. And I remember getting in my car. Mike Shinoda uh, from Lincoln Park had an, had an album out that was in memory of Chester. Uh, I got in it when I, when I met him and there was a song in there called prove you wrong. And I just kept playing it over and over and over. And I messaged uh, diamond Dallas page. I was, I got certified in DDP yoga. So I messaged DDP and I say, look, I'm just really struggling. and I don't know what to do. And he said, and this is, it's crazy because this is exactly what my dad would have said. Me and my dad bonded over wrestling. So this is why I had such a connection with, with, uh, with Dallas, with DDP. He said, you know, you did this to yourself. It's on you to get yourself out of it. From anybody else in the world, I would have been so mad. Somebody told me that, like, how dare you tell me that, that I made myself depressed? How dare you tell me that I did all these things to myself? That it's, I'm, I'm at fault for my anxiety or my mental health disorders. How dare you tell me that? But in a way, in many ways, he was right. I wasn't living a life that was conducive to mental health, even without the drugs. That was great that I went into recovery, but I still wasn't living a life conducive to optimal mental health. So I had to start utilizing what I learned in school and kind of almost trial and error, figuring things out um, as in what is going to kind of give me the most bang for my buck. What's really going to move me toward this thing that I'm seeking, which is happiness. I wanted to be happier. I wanted to be a happier person day to day. What's going to really get me there. And it took me quite some time, but I actually realized that there were kind of five main things that had to be in place. And I tried a lot of different things. I, you know, had to kind of play around with this, but I found that there were five, I call them now my five puzzle pieces of happiness because there were five things that were really really, really crucial to have in place to make sure that I was at my optimum level of mental health. Okay. So go ahead. I, I have a question that going further back in your story, but I, I don't want to stop you here. Tell us about the five things and, 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 and take us the rest of the way on your journey. Yeah. So the first thing really is, seeing where you are. I know this sounds super simple, but I really had to take an assessment for where I was because without knowing where you are, you can't really know where you're going. You can't really know uh, what your strengths are, what your weaknesses are. And sitting down and figuring out where my anxiety and depression levels were and then figuring out, okay, what does happiness actually mean? Because first and foremost, I know I say that I wanted to get to this point of being happy. Happiness isn't a destination. It's mindset but you still have to kind of define what that means for you. The second thing was 
as I said, I went to school for um, to be a mind-body wellness coach, and my specialty was holistic nutrition. And I had to go back to the basics of, I call it emotional eating the right way, because I am an emotional eater. I do uh, eat when I'm stressed and whatnot. But when you're eating all of these foods that aren't, that aren't health, that aren't supportive to uh, to optimal mental health, that are causing nutrient deficiencies, that aren't supporting uh, the the health of your of your vagus nerve, which is a nerve that this is the actual mind body connection. So everybody needs to hear this. The mind body connection is an actually very physical thing because the vagus nerve runs from the base of your brain down into your gut, and when you eat things that are causing inflammation, that sends signals to your brain that something's wrong and that can show up as anxiety and depression. There's a lot of different nutrient deficiencies that almost everyone has, scary enough. It's like a very high percentage of people in America have a lot of these deficiencies. If you are deficient in those things, you're going to have symptoms of anxiety and depression. If you already have anxiety and depression, those symptoms are going to be exacerbated. The next thing is for me was finding my fitness, because I knew, we all know, again, legally blonde, you know, endorphins make you happy and happy people just don't kill their husbands. Uh, so I, I knew that I had to be active, but I didn't really like going to the gym. I wasn't going to do the circuits and stuff. So finding out how to reap the physical and mental benefits, even though I hated working out. <laughs> so I, I, I had to teach myself how to eat for optimal mental health without ever having to count anything or do anything crazy. And then how to reap the physical and mental benefits of fitness without having to work out. The next one, this was kind of further on in the journey, but I call it the three C's of sustaining happiness because there's the compartments, which kind of gives you uh, the tools you need. It's like building a toolbox or a happiness bank. It gives you the tools that you need to be able to deal with stressful situations. Then there's the coping, then there's the, um, the communication. And all three of those things are really really, really underrated, but very important for being able to sustain happiness. So the three C's of sustaining happiness just ensures that you have all the tools you need to navigate stressful situations and stressful people, because we all have them in our lives, <laughs> without compromising uh, your happiness. And then the last step, and I put this last because it was the last thing that I really did. It was just kind of almost housekeeping at this point. Um, I call it cutting the crap, which is just teaches you how and what to let go of for that final boost to the top of your happiness spectrum. And there was so much stuff that I had to cut out of my life from people, toxic people who weren't serving me, to mindsets. And learning how to do that was so crucially important. Learning how to decide what should stay in my life and what shouldn't. And I'll tell you, at the end of this, like once I did go through the steps, the very, very tangible uh, thing that I found out was in November of 2018, I, I took what was called the DAS um, test. The it, it's, it's depression, anxiety, stress scales, and it measures your depression, anxiety, and stress. Well, in the beginning, or I'm sorry, in the beginning, in November of 2018, my depression was at a 20 and my anxiety was at a 16. But as of May of 2020, my depression was at a three and my anxiety was at a two. Now, mind you, take a look at that. That is like three months into COVID. So this is three months into a global pandemic. But I have learned how to handle 
stress of situations, even when, you know, the whole world's going crazy outside my window, I went from being where I couldn't cope with anything and was turning to drugs, was turning to self-harm, was turning to pretty much anything I could to, in the middle of a global pandemic, having my levels, not only the lowest of my life, but lower than the average person. And shortly thereafter, I ended up getting decertified as having a serious mental illness, even though every professional I talked to told me that wasn't a thing. That's not possible. That doesn't happen. You don't get decertified. Like once you're, once you have an SMI, you're SMI for life. Well, I got to look that woman in the eyes that told me I would never be happy and told her she was wrong. I proved her wrong. And I said, don't ever tell someone what they are capable of. I mean, I'm kind of glad you did for me because it gave me that drive to prove you wrong. But who knows? The next person might not have that. The next person might end up ending their life because they see no hope. Don't ever tell someone what they're capable of. And that, that is really important because that, that remember I said a few moments ago that I have a question. It's, what lingers in my mind is, I want to go back to your connection to Lincoln Park for a moment. And when you, when you reflect on, you said that, I think it was the lead singer that uh, committed suicide. Yes, he, he took his life. He lost right. his life to suicide. So, and, and usually, you know, when people commit suicide, you know, whether they realize it or not, it, there's some level of mental illness there. You know, at least it's, it's um, described as that, it's diagnosed as that. What do you think, when you look at your journey, and the fact that you came from a place where you probably could have, and, and you might have even said when you look back at your journey that you should have walked down the same path he did. And here was someone who had, you know, and I, and I asked this question because we, 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 people in society, people all over the world, people who live in communities uh, who look at each other, need to understand that mental illness is not always apparent. And it cannot be put in a box. And it, and it doesn't always require the same dynamics to, to, to become mental, a mental illness. And I say this because I always say this. I've said this a few times on different podcasts around the subject of mental illness that I get the extra TV email, you know, every day, every weekday. And they see, I haven't seen it in the last week or two where it's been the case, but I remember at one point, maybe a month ago, it was like every two days, there was a celebrity that committed suicide. A celebrity of some level, you know, whether a small celebrity or, you know, or, or lesser known and more known, but they were, and sometimes it's hard from people standing outside the circle to understand that where you say, wait a minute, my, you know, what will make me happy, this is when I say me, not me, Julian, but me as a person, you know, as, as a member of society, you know, who is struggling maybe financially and dealing with all the pressures of daily life and even COVID, you know, if I had a lot of money and I could buy this and I could live here and I could do that, then I'd be happy. And that is obviously not the case because here you are a success and Lincoln, you know, that singer from Lincoln Park is no longer with us, you know. How do you? How does that make you feel when you consider that you won the battle and he didn't? When I heard the song when I was in Canada, that's a great question, by the way. When I heard the song when I was in Canada, and I felt like I had to come down, I felt like I wasn't meant to jump. I felt like something wanted me there, and in some way, I felt like 
Chester was there with me. But then I started having this guilt and thinking, why in the hell did I deserve it? Why wasn't something there for him? Why didn't something help him? Why did he lose his battle? And I will say, it's very interesting um, where this came from, uh, where this this piece of uh, information I'm about to give came from. So as a complete and utter, I guess, kind of full circle story of serendipity to my whole experience, because I've been sharing this for some time now, and I wrote a book uh, that's going to come out next year that I want to call One More Light in honor of Chester because it was uh, that was their last album. I, I think that first and foremost, I connected to Chester because he did have a tragic backstory. He had a, a story of childhood abuse and he ended up getting into drugs and stuff to cope with that. And I didn't know that till later in, uh, in my in my journey, uh, in, in later of listening to their music and stuff and watching more of their interviews. And I actually, one of my ex-boyfriends had told me about, uh, Chester's backstory and shared the article with me, but I, I did find out that he, that he, uh, had a lot of similar things going on, but the lyrics were really what connected me. They made me feel validated. They made me feel like somebody understood, like somebody got it, like somebody, was there with me. And I never felt that with music before. I mean, I had listened to meaningful music here and there, but for the most part, I was like in sync, like, let's just listen to in sync. <laughs> that was my thing. So I, I did really connect to, to the lyrics. Also the fact that there was, you know, the screaming part and then the, the quieter like rapping part of Mike. I never liked rap. I still, to this day, have not liked any other rap, but just the kind of almost yin and yang of the music that there was like this very hardcore uh, part of it that helped me channel that, that anger and that rage and that resentment, all those feelings. But then the other part of me that could kind of bring me back down to earth and go, okay, and breathe. But um, back to the whole things coming full circle. So yesterday I had the absolute pleasure and this meant everything in the world to me. I hope that he, he hears this message because it meant absolutely everything to me. I got to interview Chester's son, Jamie Bennington for my YouTube channel. And we got to talk about you know, my journey and his journey with mental health. Cause he has mental health struggles too. And uh, Chester's background and his, his struggle, their relationship, et cetera. And it was just crazy to hear everything I already knew that I knew, you know, just in pieces, but to hear the depth of everything I already knew and to hear like the parallels and stuff and to hear, you know, somebody else very, very, very personally validating all of these feelings and stuff, you know, somebody that interestingly enough has the same smile and, and a lot of the same mannerisms and stuff as Chester. Um, it was just, it, it was, a very powerful bit of closure, of um, validation, of serendipity, just with everything um, that I've been doing uh, in this realm of mental health and stuff. So it's it, it was it was just really powerful. And he did say something that really struck me. And usually I'm not for we need to change our language and oh my god, like we have to be careful of what we say. But there was something that he had said that really struck me. And I never thought about this before. But he said that, you know, we don't he didn't commit suicide. It was not a thought out plan thing that he did. When I was on that ledge, it's not like I wanted to be there. It's not like I, you know, planned this out. And even if I had on some level planned it out, it's not like I wanted to be there. And he said, 
he lost his battle. He lost his life to suicide because suicide is a disease that takes us. It's, it's, it's not something that we particularly choose. And that's something that people on the outside that don't have mental health struggles don't understand. I, in my right mind, like from right now, obviously where I am uh, right now from a healthy mindset would never want to do that. And I perfectly see now what that would have done to my son. It would have destroyed him. But when the depression was what was taking over my mind, or as I call it, my shadow was taking over my mind, I thought it was what was best. It distorts your thoughts. It distorts everything. And nobody really commits suicide. They lose their battle to suicide. Wow. Um, that, that, that's a really interesting perspective and a, and a real perspective into the reality. You know, I think um, sharing, sharing this and sharing your process and your journey with us is, is immensely powerful and it's, it's immensely inspiring and, and it's immensely empowering um, to all, you know, to all who are at some phase of this. I am so incredibly grateful that you took the time to be on this podcast. Cause I think that, you know, in today's, in, in life in general, this has been a challenge, but in right now in the middle of a pandemic, you know, whatever layers of mental illness people have been dealing with has been compounded by, you know, by all the, the different aspects of the pandemic, you know, being in quarantine and, and dealing with so many other struggles. And I think that not only is you sharing your message is timely, but, you know, it has given me food for thought that I, you know, that I never had before. You know, I, I think it has given me, it's educated me to a point where um, I have a much better understanding of how much I did not know. Um, I'd like you to tell my audience, I'm, I'm assuming that you are reachable for conversations and for empowerment. And if so, you know, if, 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 if for any of my audience or any of the listeners who ever hear this podcast and they are inspired, touched, or, or affected by your story and they need to or want to reach out to you, is that possible and how do they do that? It absolutely is. I'm actually doing a free challenge uh, where I'm going to teach everybody this framework for free because I really just want to help people during this time and help them at least have, you know, something tangible to be able to help them through this to be able to uh, get them moving in the right direction. So I'm going to be doing a free challenge. You can go to happinessboost.life and sign up for that. And that has all of my social media and stuff and the YouTube channel uh, so that you can, if you want to watch the interview I was mentioning with uh, Chester's son, Jamie, you can definitely do that. There's, it goes really deep. It goes very deep into mental health and um, suicide and Chester and everything. And then of course, just some of, of Jamie's backstory um, with mental health and whatnot. But yeah, happinessboost.life is going to have all of my my contact information, all of my social media. And you, you also get um, my free workbook, How to Improve Your Focus and Boost Your Happiness, which gives you something to do right now while you're waiting for the challenge to start. It hasn't started uh, by the time this podcast goes live. It gives you something to functionally do because, believe me, I get it. I get it that... With everything going on, it can be kind of hard to know, okay, what's the first step to take right now? And it can be hard to get our thoughts in order. And 
I just want to say to anybody that's listening to this, if you're feeling anxiety or if you just had a panic attack or if you cried yesterday, even if you were doing perfectly fine six months ago, you're still fine. You're okay. You're going to be okay. It's normal. It's okay. I am a happy person. I'm in a good place in my life. Best place I've ever been. But I will tell you last week, I had a panic attack. It's, it is a very overwhelming energy, especially for those of us that are more susceptible um, to the energy. But I always am here for anybody. So you're not alone. There's always, there's 7 billion people in this world. If you are struggling with any of the things that we've talked about, be it addiction or self-harm or depression or anxiety, any of that, please, please, please. If not uh, me personally, I will be happy to talk to you. I'll be happy. I read all my emails. I'd be happy to talk to you or at least reach out to someone, a friend, family member, loved one. There's plenty of Facebook groups. My YouTube channel is just really a community for people to you know, discuss these issues and stuff and be able to see other people that are struggling. But yeah, like I said, happiness through stop life has all of the contact information and that's where you can sign up for the challenge that'll get you all of the framework of those five puzzle pieces of happiness. So you can start the journey too. And when does this, when does the challenge officially start? It's going to start November 9th, but even if you don't catch it live, you can always catch it later. Okay, fantastic. Well, there is an instant replay. So as long as you sign up, you'll get an instant replay. Okay, fantastic. So the last thing I'm going to ask you to do on this episode is to leave my listeners with a personal message from Amanda Webster. My personal message is we, we're told a lot, it gets better, right? If we're feeling sad, if we're feeling upset, people will say, oh, it gets better. There's another side. That's true. It does get better if you make it better. You have to do the work. You have to take the first step. I can attest that if I would have stayed in the same lifestyle and everything, it wouldn't have gotten better. It only got better when I decided that it was going to get better. Okay. So self-help, self-empowerment, uh, um, the fact that it may sound a bit selfish, but you've got to do this for yourself. You've got to make the first step. All that is real. It really is. And it might seem, I will tell you, it felt insurmountable. When I got decertified, I sat there staring at my paper, feeling like a Greek hero that had just overcame insurmountable trials. Because I'm sitting there going, everybody told me this was impossible. Everybody told me that I couldn't do this. And I had tried things in the past. I definitely tried like, okay, I'm going to eat some salads. Okay, I'm going to do some yoga. I'm going to do therapy. I'm going to read these self-help books. I'm going to do this or that. And none of it really made a significant difference because I hadn't done these things in conjunction with each other. I'd try one thing and it didn't, quote unquote, fix me. So I just jumped to the next and the next and the next. So if you're willing to put in the work, if you're willing to really, even if I, even if you don't feel like getting out of bed, and I know there were days where I, I just wanted to lay there and frankly cry, just take one step in the right direction because even one step is forward movement. So just get out of bed. I told myself when I was motivating myself to, uh, to start getting more active and stuff, it's like, okay, Amanda, just get out of bed. Just put on clothes, just, you know, and it was just one step at a time until I would get there. And now when I go to the gym some days, I do, I do go to the gym now. It took me a while to, to have that <laughs> love relationship with the gym, but it was okay. 
I'm just going to put on my gym clothes. I'm just going to go sit in my car. I'm just going to drive to the gym. It's just that one step at a time. And that really helps me with my anxiety because I was the type of person I get really overwhelmed because you don't think about it. People are like, oh, just go to the gym. That takes a lot. When you are at zero energy, getting up and getting dressed and putting on your shoes and everything, that's a process. Break it down one step at a time. One step is forward movement. Fantastic. Uh, so everyone out there, you heard Amanda's message. Um, even if I know it's difficult for you to speak to someone about your, ch- your, your challenges, then do it for yourself and, and get up and get started and get going. And I hope that for anyone and for every listener that Amanda's story has inspired you and empowered you and uplifted you and educated you and done, you know, done a real, real justice to spreading the, 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 the details and the um, a, a clear understanding about serious mental illness. Amanda, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you here. Um, I'm going to uh, put this out there right now and, and invite you back when you, certainly when your book is published, because I think that this conversation needs to be had uh, at least, you know, more than once. But thank you ever so much for taking the time out and uh, for being a part of 247 Real Talk. Thank you so, so much for having me. It was amazing. Yes, you're quite welcome. I want to say a very special thank you to my guest for this episode, Amanda Webster, for really being willing to dig down deep and tell her story on this very important issue. I hope that it has inspired my listeners out there and and it's uh, a help to someone and to anyone who needs to get out, to take that step and get going. I also want to say a special thank you, as I always do, to my listeners and my supporters. I'll remind you that you can catch all the episodes or any episode you want to listen to on your favorite podcast app. You can also head over to the website to www.247realtalk.net where you can also listen to any episode and find more details about the guests and their stories. If you'd like to leave me a message or if you'd like to be a guest in the show, you could email me at podcast at 247realtalk.net. That's podcast at 247realtalk.net. Until the next time, do take care of yourselves and each other.